0: in in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 as we continue uh, our theme in this series as we are looking at uh, the life of Jesus and in particular in these chapters we're seeing the power of Jesus and what that's supposed to mean uh, in the lives of those who hear him and, and respond to him. Uh, and, and as we begin this, this lesson th- this morning, I-, I want you to think about what you really need in life. It is something that Jesus, in the way that he teaches and the way that he moves about uh, Judea and Galilee, is-, is trying to get people to consider uh, what do you really need most in your life? What is the most important thing that you need? Uh, it's sometimes funny to watch what people wear as t-shirts as the most important thing they need, like, but first coffee, right, or something like that. For, for me, it would say, first Dr. Pepper, and then I can function with you. I need, need that to keep going. Uh, it's interesting the different things that we think are, are, are valuable to get through the day, uh, and we wear those things, obviously, as, as a joke. But, but what, what Jesus does is regularly try to get people to think about, no, really on a deeper level, what do you uh, ultimately need? What do you need most uh, in your life? And Jesus is going to show that here uh, in, in Matthew chapter 9. You'll notice that in chapter 9 and verse 1, uh, we're told that Jesus is getting back in the boat and he's going back to the other side of Galilee. You might remember He had crossed over to the eastern side because he's seen who's going to really follow. He had a great crowd with him. And Jesus is always about thinning the herd. And he did that by saying, well, if you really want to follow me, I have nowhere to sleep. You need to put aside the excuses and come across and follow me. And now he's come across the other side. Remember, a whole town has heard about the miracle that he had accomplished in casting out demons. And that that whole town says, you need to please leave. We want you to go away. So that's how chapter eight ends. So he now gets back in the boat. He's crossing back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, back to that Capernaum area, back to his home area there in in Galilee. In verse two, we're told that some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want you to visualize that scene for a minute because it's really an unusual scene. Uh, It would be an unexpected scene. You would imagine what this looks like. People have been bringing sick people to Jesus, people who have diseases, people who are infirm. They've got all of these different ailments and they're coming to Jesus. And the same thing is happening here is that here is a paralyzed man. He has some good friends. And they're going to bring him to Jesus. And I want you to visualize what this would look like. Is here you have this paralyzed man who is laid down in front of Jesus. And Jesus' first words are, good news. Be encouraged. Take courage. Take heart. I've got something great for you. And would you not have expected the rest of the sentence to be, get up and walk. Or you're healed. Or now you can walk. But instead, Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. And he continues to lay there, not healed. What a scene that would have been. That had to be a head scratching moment. As everybody is watching Jesus and you're expecting a healing, and instead of a healing at that moment, Jesus says, Well, your sins are forgiven. Good news, be encouraged, take heart. Your sins are forgiven and there he he lies. And you just imagine just like everybody just stopping and looking at this going, it's not what we expected. That was not what was supposed to happen at that moment. And you'll notice that that's exactly what you see happening in verse, verse three. You have some of the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they're not happy with what Jesus says. In verse 3, you notice they start saying, well, he's, he's blaspheming God. He's blaspheming. Obviously this looks like blaspheming. He's saying he's God. He is forgiving sins. What does this guy think he's doing? It's one thing to go ahead and heal this man. They wouldn't have had a problem with that. But say that his sins are forgiven. Who does he think he is? Well, I want you to notice what Jesus then says in verse 4. In fact, before he says it, you'll notice verse 4 says something fascinating. Jesus knowing their thoughts. How often do the scriptures tell us he knows exactly what's going on in the hearts of the people? And so here he's aware of what's going on. You don't catch it at the moment, but in verse 3 it says they were saying these things to themselves. So they're not running around going, everybody reject Jesus because he's blaspheming. They just start saying it to each other. Who is this guy that he'd be blaspheming God like that? And Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. And so Jesus begins with this question. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Think about that here. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their minds. And he goes, I know you have evil motives. Would that not have been scary? Can you imagine being there and you didn't say anything to him? And he turns around to you and goes, I know what you're thinking. And boy, that's not good. <laughs> I'm <just> like, Okay. <laughs> How about that? Jesus immediately addresses what they're thinking and goes, why do you have evil motives? Why do you entertain these evil thoughts in your heart? Why are you? Thinking these things, and that is a a very important framework to what's happening not only in this account but the connected account in verses nine through thirteen. Why do you have these evil motives? Why are you thinking these things? What you're immediately seeing Jesus identify is these people are not really concerned about the name of God. They they sound like it. Boy, how dare he claim to be God? He's blaspheming when he says something like that. But Jesus goes, "That's not really your concern." You're not saying this because you have a great concern about the glory and the holiness of God. You have evil motives. You have a whole different reason. You sound pious, you sound righteous. Oh, he's blaspheming God. But Jesus is able to get right underneath it and goes, you have evil motives. You're not saying that for the right reason. I know what's going on in your heart. And so now he's going to challenge that. And I want you to notice how he challenges that in verse 5. When he says... So what, what's what's easier here to say? What What is easier? And a lot of people stumble on trying to get under what this is doing. So let's just think this through. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now, you might say, I could say either one. <laughs> saying, saying either of them is easy. But what Jesus is getting at is talking about it's easy to say things that show authority that cannot be visually proven. I mean, this still happens today. You have people walk around saying, hey, your sins are forgiven. I'm forgiving you. That's not visually proven. How can you see that? Easy to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. So are yours. So are yours. So everybody, anybody can say that. There's no way to validate that. There's no proof of that. But it's a lot harder to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk. There's visual evidence of that. There's no way you can just throw that one out there and everybody go, oh, yeah, he's got authority. Even the guy just still lays there. It's far easier to tell somebody that I have authority about things that you can't see. That's what Jesus is getting at right here. I'm going to show you something so that you can understand what cannot be visually seen. What's easier to say? To get up and walk? That's a far harder thing to do. And that's where he goes in this, verse 6. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has a authority on earth to forgive sins. See, he could just say, ah, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, what? We don't believe you. And the other person goes, okay, great. But how are you supposed to know? And that's why he does what's next at the end of verse 6. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. So you see the the picture here of what Jesus is doing. Why is he saying your sins are forgiven. Why cause this awkward moment? I've got to think that was an awkward moment. Here's the, the paralyzed man. Jesus goes, your sins are forgiven. And everybody just kind of looking at this going, not what he was asking for. You didn't kind of fulfill what Was going on. What's happening here? Why is Jesus creating this awkward moment? Why is he getting them to think about this? And that's what he's saying there at the end of the end of verse 6. The miracles were intended to show the authority that Jesus had to forgive sin. The miracle was the visible proof to show that the invisible was happening. He could go around telling everybody I forgive sins and he would be doing it, but how would you know? So he says, that's why I did this miracle is so that you will see that because the bigger need for the man is the forgiveness of sins. And he wants to show them in this moment, here's how you know I have that authority. Because what are they doing? They're saying, oh, he's blaspheming God. He's going, no, I'm not. Actually, quite the opposite. The only one who has the ability to forgive sins is God alone. And that's what happens here. And it looks like in verse 8, the people understand that. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God. They understood exactly what the message was. He is clearly from God. He has the authority to forgive sins. And we have seen that visibly in the fact that he is able to heal this paralyzed man. I mean, imagine the moment when this man just gets up and takes the the mat that the guy's carried him on, and he just walks right out of there. Whew! Amazing. What an amazing appeal of of his authority. Now, as we've talked about in the Gospel of Matthew, we can have the tendency to think... That what Matthew is doing is just kind of throwing out random standalone events and we can kind of isolate them from one another. But these events are being told and chronicled in a way to capture a big idea and a key teaching moment in the life of Jesus. And that's the same here. This account of what happened with Jesus sets up what Matthew is is going to show for us in verses nine through 13. After describing that Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive sins, that's gonna set up now a picture of what Jesus is ultimately looking for in this. In verse nine, it reads, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Let's stop and get a sense of the scene because I think we can have the tendency to read this and brush off the Pharisees a little bit and go, boy, they're really callous and uncaring. And why would they ever be like this? It's you know, what is he doing with tax collectors and sinners? You have to appreciate how vile and awful these sinners are. You know, sometimes when we read, you know, that Jesus was with sinners, we can perhaps visualize that as. You know, oh, my neighbor who's a sinner, who's a pretty decent person, and we're pretty good friends, and he's kind, and, you know, yes, yes, he needs Jesus and to give his life, but he's really not a really awful, terrible person. We, You know, sinner. When the scriptures talk about Jesus being with tax collectors and sinners, he is talking about people there is no way you'd want to be with. These are not people you're going to be friends with. These are renowned swindlers, scoundrels, cheats, liars, and sexually immoral people. They are known to be sinners. The sins have to be significant enough that you are able to know the person and go, oh yeah, that's a sinner. I need to be over here. I don't want to eat dinner with that person. That's the kind of level You're talking about. These are not Pharisees who are like, you know, what is he doing being among the general populace of people in Israel and he's eating dinner with them? You have to strengthen. These are the people that nobody wanted to be around. These are the people you wouldn't have had a meal with. These are not people you'd be friends with. And especially when you understand all the more in that culture, when you sat together in a home and had a meal, that that communicated a friendship. I mean, that even still does today. Who are the people that you let into your home? Not random strangers. Who comes over for a meal? People that are close to you. It was all the more so back then. And so the Pharisees are blown away. What is Jesus doing? Having a meal with vile, disgusting sinners that are renowned for their sins. Who would possibly do such a thing? And I want you to notice that the Pharisees go to the disciples and say this. Why is your teacher a mess? What is, what is your teacher doing? You're going to follow this guy? Why would you follow him? He's eating with these people. Who would do such a thing? If he's righteous and holy and from God and has the authority to forgive sins, he would never be with people like this. You're following a fraud. That's what they're saying. Jesus has a couple of answers to that. Verse 12 On hearing this, I love that Jesus, again, not directed to him, but he's jumping in. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. Notice this is the essence of the mission now being expressed. Jesus has come to forgive sins. The prior paragraph is, I want you to know that I have the authority. I have the power given to me and the miracles prove That I can forgive sins. And now you see the mission being expressed. That Jesus has come to forgive sins. But there are two issues, two problems, that ultimately arise from this mission. The first mission, the first missional problem is, if you don't know that you're sick, you can't be healed. It is not to the healthy who needs a doctor but the sick and sometimes we can struggle with that is he saying that the Pharisees are fine and they're not sick no he's definitely not saying that the Pharisees are so often the problem that Jesus is dealing with so what's the message how can you say it? these notorious sinners know that they're sick and the Pharisees think they're healthy Jesus why are you eating? With vile sinners. Why would you be in table fellowship with them? Why are you sharing this meal? And the first answer that he is giving here is only the people who, who are sick know that they will take a doctor. They'll receive what a doctor offers. When you think about that, I, I never go to a doctor if I'm well. I know you're kind of supposed to, right? Supposedly. Not me. No. If I have nothing wrong, I'm not going. Why should I go? I'm just fine. Nothing's going on. No problem. They'll, they'll always love when I go to a specialist. When was the last time you saw a general care practitioner doctor? I don't know. 2002. I, I have no idea. I, I, have, I don't go to one. I don't need it. I'm not sick. So I don't go to a doctor. That's what Jesus is saying. The, the, the righteous, the people who think they're fine before God aren't going to go to Jesus. They don't see him as a need. They think they're fine and healthy. Jesus goes, I can't come to you. You won't receive me. You think you're fine. I'm going to them because they understand the problem. They understand that they have an issue. They understand they need forgiveness. They understand their circumstance. So that's why I go to them. But the second picture is just as strong. Notice that the imagery is not that they're coming to him. But he points out there in verse 12, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick that I'm going to go to them. And I think this is such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is making such a vital point. He can't forgive sins if he doesn't go to the sick. He cannot forgive sins if he goes doesn't go to the sick. Can you imagine A doctor who does not see sick people. It wouldn't make sense. I mean, imagine during the pandemic in 2020 when all that was going down. People have COVID and they go to the doctor and the doctor goes, I'm not going to see you because you have COVID. You'd be like, "Uh, you're supposed to help. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense for the doctor to say no to the sick. That's the whole reason you're a doctor. That's what Jesus is saying. I have to go to the sick. That's my mission. My mission's not for the people who think they've got it figured out. The mission's not for the people who don't want to learn and grow and change and hear their problems and be changed by the gospel. I'm going to the people who know that they are sick. I have to go to those who understand their condition. And friends, I do want you to take hope in that picture. Jesus does not come and say, stay away from me because you're sinful and I'm holy and clean. That would have made sense. right? He could have said, you know, I I am perfect and holy and just and upright. I'm the very opposite of everything about you and you are defiled and gross sinners who are enemies of God and so you stay over there while I keep myself purified. No, he's doing something that the religious elites are upset about. You are going to the worst of sinners. You are going to renowned sinners. You're going into there and having a meal with them and Jesus says, of course I am because I'm the doctor who can solve their problems. Of course, I'm going to spend my time with them. My mission is to be able to forgive sins. But then Jesus says something that is vitally important. Notice how this whole scene ends. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. You, You need a Bible lesson. That's what he tells them. Here's your Bible lesson. He quotes a verse. He says, you need to learn something from the scriptures. Here's what I want you to go and learn. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So he quotes Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. We'll look at that in just a minute. He says, There's a passage in the scriptures that you clearly do not understand. And so you need to stop what you're doing about challenging me and why I'm here and what I'm doing. And go back and learn the scripture. Now to understand this quote, you always have to get the context of the quote. So we got to back up in in Hosea chapter six and start in in verse one to get a sense of where this, this is all going. Hosea chapter six and verse one reads, here's what the people are saying. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Now, here's the people and here's what they're saying. And I want you to notice that all sounds really good, doesn't it? Hey, we need to return to the Lord. And if we return to the Lord... He will heal us. He'll revive us. He'll give us life again. Notice the imagery. We've been made dead for two days, but on the third day, he will restore us. So we've been judged by God and we've been worthy of that judgment, but let's return to God. Let's follow in his ways. Let's acknowledge the Lord and press on to get to know him. And just like as surely as the sun rises, He's going to be able to bring blessings upon us. That sounds like, oh, great repentance, right? Verse four, here's what God says. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see the quotation there at the end. So here are the people they are saying, yes, we need to get back with God. We need to follow God. We need to serve God, acknowledge God, and he will restore us and bless us again. And here's God's answer. What am I supposed to do with you? What am I supposed to do with you? And notice what he says in verse 4. Your love is like a morning mist and like the early dew that disappears. You ever gone outside early in the morning? I don't think it really happens this time. It's mean, got to be kind of in the winter where you go outside and the grass is a little wet. And you're like, oh, did it rain? No. Just that dew in the morning that give it about an hour and, it, and it's gone. He says, your love for me is like that. It's here for a moment and then it vanishes. And that's why God said, what am I supposed to do? You, everything you said sounds good, but your love is so temporary. You're so wishy-washy. You act like you care about God, but you really don't. And thus that all funnels down to this declaration. Here's what God says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So what does Hosea mean when he says that by the inspiration of God? And what does Jesus mean as he quotes this to the people? I think what is some big pictures, three big pictures of what he wanted them to learn. Number one, Jesus is telling them, I want people who want me, not people who pretend to want me. When he says, I want you to go learn this. I desire mercy, not such. Well, he's taking that whole paragraph. Well, why did Hosea say that? Hosea said that because you are dealing with a people who are a bunch of pretenders. They say the right words when they're in trouble only to go back to what they're doing once they get out of trouble. Man, that is Israel's history. Every time they get in a jam, oh, Lord, help us, save us, rescue us. Please bring your blessings back. God answers and responds. The people go, great, thanks. Let me get back to ignoring you again and doing what I always want to do. And that's what Jesus is pointing out right here. He says, it's clear you don't desire me. You don't have this true relationship with me. In fact, that word in the Hebrew mercy, your translation might have said steadfast love or faithful love or covenant love. There is an image of loyalty behind it. I desire loyalty. I desire your faithfulness. I desire you to keep your end of the covenant, not just simply offering sacrifices. That's what he's driving at with them. You guys act like you're so pious and righteous. always oh, blaspheming God. You don't care about that. Your love is like the morning dew. You're not about relationship with God. You're about a few external things. You do some perfunctory things in service to God, but it's not out of relationship. It's not out of a love for God. It's not that you desire him. And that's what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that he is interested in people who want to be forgiven and who want to be healed. He's interested in people who understand their need and they want them to follow him. To say this another way, Jesus is not interested in people who want to just keep the minimum of commands. He's not interested in people who look at what are enough external things that I can do to trick everybody, but I really don't want a relationship with God. You might remember King David wrote in Psalm 19. Oh, how I love your law. And he starts talking about your law and your commands are like honey to me. You ever thought about that? How is God's law like honey? That sounds, I mean, aren't laws terrible and awful and we don't like those things? Because what David understood was that the laws reveal who God is so that he could draw closer to him. He didn't look at the words of God and the commands of God and the laws of God as, okay, well, here's some of the things I need to do to get God off my back and just try to slide through some minimums. He looked at the laws and the commands and the word of God and said, this is how I get closer to God because I want a relationship. And so the words are sweet to me. They're they're as sweet as honey to me. And that's what Jesus is proclaiming here in this moment is that God's words is not about a bunch of commands and a bunch bunch of laws, but a way to come to a relationship with God. And, And what's beautiful about what Jesus says here to these people is he's trying to clear out Who's just a pretender and who really wants to know me? That's why he's thinning crowds. Who really wants to get to know me? Who wants to follow me? Who wants to seek me? Which leads to the second point from Hosea. Jesus wants a people whose devotion lasts. God's not impressed with our false starts. He's not impressed with our head fakes. We look like we're going to be really devoted. Okay, this week's the week where I'm going to make a lot of changes. I'm going to be what God wants us to be. I'm going to really overhaul my life and transform only to get to Monday and it be the same thing as always and not doing it. He wants a devotion that lasts. He doesn't want a devotion that is like a mist or like the dew of the morning. Where for the moment we're convicted by our sin and we go, oh, you're right. I need to acknowledge God. I need to make some big changes. And then we get to Monday morning and absolutely nothing changes. He says, I'm not interested in that. And I hope that we would think about what that kind of looks like with God. You have relationships with people, and the only reason they ever talk to you is because they've got a problem. But when they don't have a problem, you're of no interest to them whatsoever. It's a pretty frustrating relationship, right? You're like, you're just kind of using me. I'm only here for you when you've got a problem. As soon as I solve it, then everything's A-OK. We're like that with God so often. This unlasting devotion, this oh. I've got a problem, Lord, but it doesn't last. Oh, I'm going to change, but it doesn't last. It's not a real relationship. It looks like it, but it's actually manipulative. Oh, God, fix this. Okay, now back to what I was always doing. God is looking for a relationship that lasts. So it's not only I want your heart, I want a relationship, not a bunch of externals, but I want it to last. I want your loyalty. I want your heart. I want your devotion. I want it to stick. God's not interested in a ping pong game where we just keep going back and forth with him. You know, here we are with him. Yeah, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Be devoted to the Lord. That's what he's calling for them to do. And it's why he's dealing with these people. He's calling for them to have a deep lasting relationship with him. He wants a devotion that lasts. And it's not enough just to be partially one foot in. I'm afraid sometimes we think about our relationship with God that way. You know, I just I got one foot firmly planted with God and one foot staying right where I want it to be. <laughs> he doesn't want that. He wants all of our heart. Which leads to the third point, as he says there at the end of verse 13, for I have come to call, not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To put this another way, Jesus is wanting a people who are ready to show mercy to others. Because they care about souls as much as he does. The whole purpose of Jesus is because he cares so much about the souls of people. He willingly takes on the role of being our doctor and willingly decides to come to his people so that he can heal them, so he can make them healthy. And I think this is so important because what it does is it reminds us of our mission being tied to Jesus' mission. That God is looking for a people who will show mercy to others because they have experienced so much mercy from God himself. To say that another way, it is not possible for us to have a relationship with God And not have a heart to help people come to the Lord. It is impossible to have a relationship with God and not have a heart to help people come to the Lord because the whole mission of God is to come to the sick. So how can we think if we ignore the sick that we're all right with God? That's the whole mission. That's his whole purpose. That's why he's here. That's what he's come to do. That's the whole image of what that first scene is all, all about. And saying, I've come to forgive sins. And I'm proving it by my by this visible sign. Is that you will know that that's why I'm here. That's what I'm all about. And I want you to notice that you catch what was happening in verses 10 and 11. In the prior verse, in verse verse 9, you have Jesus coming to Matthew who's in his tax booth and he says, follow me. What's the very next thing that's recorded for us? Matthew going around to all his friends and saying, well, it's too bad Jesus didn't pick you. He sure does love me a lot. (laughs) He gathers all of the other tax collectors and all the notorious sinners that he knows and says, you've got to meet this guy the mercy that is dispensed to us is supposed to be dispensed to everybody else that's what matthew was doing right here he immediately is gathering everybody else and saying you've got to meet jesus you've got to get to know this guy he called me to be a disciple he can make you a disciple as well matthew had mercy on others just as ha- as jesus had had mercy on him all right so here's our here's our big deal I think if I were to sum all of this up, there's a lot of ways to sum it up, but I would say it like this. That Jesus is wanting us to see our need, see his authority to forgive sins so that we will become real, fully devoted followers of him. That's what all of this scene is expressing, is only people who see their need will become fully devoted followers. Only people who see that Jesus can forgive their sins will become fully devoted followers. Everybody else is on the peripheral and they look righteous and they say righteous things, but they don't belong to God because they don't see their need and they don't have a heart for other people. You know, we have a saying of what that is. What we we say, it's it's one thing to talk the talk, but you got to walk the walk. That's what Jesus is pulling right here. You got the Pharisees all talking. They look so righteous. What are you, you, know, oh, what are you doing? And Jesus is saying, you've got to walk the walk. That's what I'm looking for is I'm looking for people who understand how much they need forgiveness. I'm looking for people who understand who they are before God. I'm looking for people who want a relationship. I'm looking for people who will be truly repentant. I'm looking for people who want to show the mercy of God to others because they've received so much mercy from God themselves. He tells these Pharisees, You need to go learn this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It was quite a throwdown because the context was of a bunch of people who said all the right things but weren't doing it. A bunch of people who proclaimed to acknowledge God, looked righteous, but they didn't understand who they were. They didn't understand the forgiveness that they needed and did not allow that forgiveness to transform them to become real, fully devoted followers of him. I want you to think about where you are in your relationship with God. It's one thing to say, I follow. It's one thing to even be like the Pharisees where everybody looks at you and says, oh, we think you're a follower. You say all the right things. And you may even have the sacrifices that Jesus speaks of where you're doing these kinds of externals that you go to church and you don't do a bunch of bad things and you're certainly not as bad as so-and-so. But do you have the mercy that God's looking for? Do you have faithful covenant love? A love that will stay with him longer than the dew of the morning. Will you be with him no matter what? Because you see what he's given to you. Let's go to God in prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so easy to fall into the trap of saying the right things and looking the part and forgetting the mission. Lord, we thank you for this passage that reminds us of your mission to seek and save the lost. And Lord, I pray that our desire would be first to desire you and a relationship with you, not merely doing things that we think you want in terms of externals, but wanting to get to know you. Lord, help us to seek you with all of our heart and let that desire to know you and seek you transform us so that we will follow you more faithfully as we live our lives. And Lord, we pray for forgiveness for as often as our love for you and our devotion and our obedience can be as, as, as temporary as a a mist in the air or the dew of the ground forgive us for when we have had repeated head fakes and false starts and proclaiming how we would be different and change and never did lord i pray that you would give us a spiritual strength that we need today so that we would truly be transformed And that the words that we proclaim would match the actions of our lives, which would come from a heart that is devoted to you. And Lord, forgive us for when we have not had your mission at the forefront of our minds. Help us to always see your mercy and faithfulness so that we will show mercy and faithfulness to the world around us. Help us to be the signs that point them to you and that help them to see your glory, your mercy, your faithfulness, and your goodness. Forgive us for where we failed. And Lord, strengthen us for greater things ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation song, and I want you to come to Jesus to see who he is. Your hope is that he came for the sinners. And so the good news is... We can look back at what Jesus has called us to do, and we can go, you know, I just have fallen completely on my face. I have failed catastrophically in the mission. I've lost sight of what He wants me to be. I have not dug in and grown to know Him and built the relationship with Him. My love has been temporary. It's not too late. He came for you, He came for people who would acknowledge their weaknesses and failures. He's the doctor who can give you the healing you need. And I hope that today would be a day that you would choose to turn away from the path that you've been on and choose to live a devoted, faithful life to him, turning from sin, following him with all of your heart. If he can help you in any way to do that, would you let us know? Talk to us afterward, or you can come forward while we stand and while we speak.